Chapter thirty eight of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter thirty eight. The Dinner to General Compton. The dinner which the governor had mentioned to Mr. Longleat, and which was given to General Compton, a certain military officer who had come out from England upon a tour of inspection of the Australian defences, took place that evening. It was an entirely informal banquet. The hosts were half a dozen of the best men in Leichardt's land, who had in their youth been acquainted with General Compton, and wished to do him honour before his departure from Australia. These gentlemen might have been pointed out as representing an especial type of colonist. They were cadets of noble families who, having immigrated early in life, combined the hereditary instincts of race with the practical wisdom of the colonial squatter and embodied the truest conservatism to be found in Australia. The position which they held was neutral and entirely independent of monetary or political prestige. They rather disdained the strife of parties and had they entered the arena would probably have withdrawn from it, disgusted by the petty contention of conflicting personal interests, yet their influence, though passive, was powerful and it may be said went far towards preserving the balance of power in an undisciplined community. The dinner had been carefully composed and was well served in the principal dining-room of the club. Colonel Augmering, in a strictly social capacity, presided. He was delighted to escape from the shackles of vice-regal etiquette, and by no means regretted that the Premier's absence precluded the introduction of any political element in the convivial gathering. The company was entirely to his taste, and Lady Georgina's eagle eye did not rule the repast. General Compton was placed upon the governor's right. He was erect and distinguished-looking, with fine eyes, regular features, and high-bred utterance. He had divided with Barrington to the honours of the season, had not been remiss in his attentions to Miss Longleat, and though report proclaimed him a married man, he contrived to keep his wife in the background and to retain the prestige of a bachelor. He was a bon vivant, a good story-teller, an admirer of the fair sex, and when, as upon occasions like the present, he was enabled to relax the rigid conventionality necessary to the maintenance of his military dignity, he displayed a tendency to double entendre. The other guests, with one or two exceptions, notably in the cases of Dyson Maddox and Cornelius Cathcart, were men of European proclivities, bearing the stamp of cities curiously blended with the rude traces of bush life. The only discordant element in the party presented itself in the shape of Mr. Valency, who, in virtue of a quasi-cousinship, had been invited at the last moment out of compliment to General Compton, and who was manifestly unwelcome to several of the gentlemen present. He had come fancying that Longleat might be there, with the vaguely formed intention of making a scene. He looked excited and unsteady. His face was pale and his eyes wild while his mood seemed to alternate between fits of forced hilarity and sullen depression. At his entrance an uneasy consciousness fell upon the group. No one dared to question him upon his abrupt return from Gundaroo. The names of the Premier and Mrs. Valency, upon the lips of everyone present, were forcibly arrested there. There was an awkward silence, but the General's fine tact bridged over the gulf. Commonplace topics were introduced, and as the dinner proceeded, restraint wore off. Conversation flowed smoothly after a time, and jarring notes were drowned in the sound of mirth and repartee. 
the champagne glasses were frequently plied. Colonel Ogmering's face reddened, and his mood became expansive. He forgot that he was the governor of an important colony, and suffered his heart to rejoice in the recollection of past jovial experiences. General Compton's anecdotes began to touch upon women in a manner more and more significant. When the attendants had left the room, the laughter had reached as high a pitch of uproariousness as is possible in refined male society. There is a gentlemanly coarseness to be observed in postprandial conversation, which in the ears of an abstemious listener is apt to sound obnoxiously. Dyson sat silent, his soul rising in a disgust which, under any other circumstances, he might not have felt, his tongue refusing to take part in the piquant discourse that flowed down each side of the table. The tide of discussion turned towards the relative merits of English and Australian beauties. As was natural, Honoria Longleat's name was mentioned in terms of praise. General Compton was loud in his admiration. Such a figure, such eyes, such hair, must needs place their possessor upon a par with any European belle. Free comments were bestowed upon her smile, her dress, her gait. Was not her physique of the same type as that of the celebrated Mrs. Blank, whom Colonel Ogmering must recollect, and so on. It was impossible to take open exception to the remarks, yet Dyson's anger rose to the pitch of fury. That his goddess should be profaned by such vulgar criticism. He made one or two attempts to turn the conversation, but to no avail. Presently, Colonel Ogmering exclaimed, as though apropos of the subject, "'What a thousand pities that Barrington could not be here this evening! "'Never was so sorry for a man in my life. "'Curious that he should have been knocked under, "'just after hearing of his good luck "'and having stepped into his brother's shoes. "'Seems unkind to say so, don't it? "'I used to know poor old Lionel Barrington and liked him, "'though he was not one of your jovial sort. "'Always a bit of a screw. "'Many is the capital's day's sport I have had in his coverts.' "'By Jove! What a fine woman his mother was! "'Do you remember her, Compton?' "'A splendid woman,' replied General Compton. "'I know her well. "'It was I who advised her to send Hardress out here, poor devil. "'But there was nothing else to be done after that affair in the guards.' "'You know the truth of that story?' asked Maddox suddenly. "'Of course. It was talked about in every club in London.' but people will have forgotten it long before Hardress has returned to England. At any rate, it is not fair to repeat it now. Men will be men, and women, women. And women, women, repeated Valency with diabolical emphasis. You are right, General. It is they who drive men to the deuce. The more fools men for being driven, laughed the General. Let us drink confusion to the sex, continued Valency. This is uncommonly fine claret. I don't know that I ever tasted better at broccoli, eh, General? Perdition to women. You would not persuade my friend Barrington to join you in that toast, laughed General Compton. He was always a noted admirer of the fair sex, is still, I believe. I hope to congratulate him before long upon his conquest of the Australian beauty and of her fortune. The Premier will have nothing to say to him, remarked one of the guests. I know it for a fact. Our ci-devant bullock driver has some queer Republican notions, and among them is a hatred of the English aristocracy. 
but Miss Longleat is a young lady of spirit, and determined to marry whom she pleases. It is a case of genuine love. She and her father have not spoken since the affair came out. The enchantress of Curl been in love? cried another. I thought that she was la belle dame sans merci. Sir, said Dyson slowly, addressing the governor, his fury at white heat, you will allow me to protest against this public mention of a lady's name. Oh, my dear fellow, said the governor in a bantering tone, we are all friends here, and all devoted and respectful admirers of the young lady, no one more so than myself. She is national property, and her matrimonial projects are as interesting to the colony as the formation of the Kuya Railway, or her father's possible knighthood. But since you are so punctilious, we will drop the subject and confine ourselves to talking about Mr. Barrington. I never was so shocked in my life as when I was told this morning of his accident. By the way, I'm not at all clear about the affair. No one seems to know exactly how it happened. Has anyone heard how he was this evening? I sent to inquire late this afternoon, Your Excellency, replied the aide-de-camp. They thought that Barrington was better. He was no longer insensible. How did it take place? asked a gentleman who had only arrived from the bush that afternoon. Barrington was driving down Silver Street in a hansom about two o'clock this morning. The cabin was tipsy and ran into something. There was a clean smash, and poor Barrington was knocked against the curbstone. I was talking to an old Chittenden in the smoking-room this afternoon, said a gentleman seated next Dyson. No one has a keener relish for a bit of gossip, as you and I know. He was full of a mysterious lady in black. He said that she was in the cab with Barrington when the accident happened, and was hustled off by some kind friend before anyone could catch a glimpse of her face. I am afraid, said the general, that my friend Hardress has not been as prudent as one might have hoped. It was surely unwise to trust himself, and the company of incognita, to the tender mercies of a tipsy cabman. These escapades won't help in making a good marriage. Not that that is of much consequence now. I am not certain that, under present circumstances, Lady Alice Barrington would welcome an Australian daughter-in-law. And did no one see the lady? asked the governor curiously. Clark of the Lands watched Barrington and a tall woman in black with fair hair get out of a closed carriage at River Terrace, where Barrington lodges, about midnight, said the aide-de-camp, who knew his patron's weakness and had come primed with the latest gossip. No doubt this was the same lady with whom he was driving later. Clark swears to the hair and the height, but she was holding her hand to her face, so he could not see her features. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Colonel Augmering. "'I shall have a nice chaff against Barrington when he gets round. A mysterious female, tall, with golden hair. Can no one tell me the color of her eyes?' "'They are brown, Your Excellency,' said Valency suddenly joining in the discussion with the air of one well informed upon the subject. "'What? You are acquainted with the fair anonyma, Mr. Valency?' said Colonel Augmering. Cathcart and Dyson exchanged quick glances across the table. "'In common justice,' exclaimed the latter with a ghastly attempt at unconcern, "'I think the subject ought to be dropped, at least till Mr. Barrington is able to speak for himself. If there was a lady in the case—' There are obvious reasons why her name should not be mentioned. My dear Maddox, said the governor jokingly, you are most heroic in your championship this evening. 
but don't you think that in this instance it is somewhat misplaced? An unveiled lady, who is seen driving with a gentleman at two o'clock in the morning, is surely public property. Dyson's blood ran cold, but clearly there was no more to be said. To pursue his remonstrance would but make matters worse. The men had all drunk too much to be over-nice in their distinctions, and a point of honour is not easily discerned through the fumes of wine and cigar smoke. The remark was followed by a coarse innuendo, greeted with a burst of ribald laughter. Valancy was assailed with eager half-joking questions which he parried, stimulating curiosity till the importunities redoubled. For a moment the gentlemanly instinct made him hesitate. Then a cur-like longing for revenge against Longleat got the better of him. It was in his power to damn the reputation of his enemy's daughter, as that enemy had damned that of his wife. "'You all know the lady,' he exclaimed in loud, clear tones. "'I see no reason why she should disgrace herself and get off scot-free.' "'For God's sake, think what you are saying, man!' whispered Cathcart convulsively in his ear. "'It was Honoria Longleat, the Premier's daughter,' said Valancy, looking defiantly around, who was seen with Barrington at his lodgings last night, and who was driving with him when the accident happened in Silver Street. A sudden, alarming silence fell upon the party. Valancy was half terrified by the effect his words had produced, half cowed by the indignant eyes that were turned upon him. "'I can prove the facts,' he asserted doggedly. I have witnesses who can swear to the truth of what I have said. There is not a man in Leckhart's town able to give me the lie. You are either mad or drunk, said Dyson, rising like an indignant bear with a little shake of his broad shoulders. His voice rang clear through the room. He was perfectly calm, and as he stood erect under the light, looked rigid as iron. But there was a gleam in his eye which pierced into Valancy's soul, and extinguished the small spark of courage by which it had been animated. If you are neither, then you are a cowardly liar. You have foully aspersed a lady whom you believed would be undefended, because her father is not present to protect her from insult. The introduction of her name in such an assemblage as this was at best a breach of good taste. Had the Premier been here, it could not have been committed. I am glad that the calumny has been uttered in my hearing, I may at least guard from profanation a name which is dearer to me than my own honour. Colonel Ogmering drew himself up in his chair, and said, with an air of stern dignity that contrasted strangely with his former joviality, Mr. Maddox, your severe words reflect somewhat on me as the person presiding at this table. I will not admit that the rebuke has been deserved. Most of us had reason to believe that we were in the company of gentlemen— I am shocked and grieved at the turn which a mere bantering conversation has taken. Mr. Valancy must be laboring under an extraordinary delusion, and after a moment's reflection will acknowledge his mistake. As far as we are concerned, this ridiculous accusation shall be as absolutely void as though it had never been uttered. I will not retract what I know to be true, said Valancy doggedly. If Mr. Barrington were to swear on his oath that Miss Longleat did not go to his rooms with him at midnight last night, I could prove him guilty of perjury. I repeat that Mr. Valancy has lied, said Maddox deliberately. I am ready to argue the point with him when and where he pleases. Gentlemen, 
I appeal to your chivalry to help me in vindicating a pure and innocent lady from slander. That lady is engaged to be my wife. Surely this is sufficient answer to Mr. Valancy's accusation. Several of the men cried, Shame not to have told us sooner. Some laughed. Some looked disconcerted, and others shouted, Brava! I congratulate you, Mr. Maddox, said the governor. It would have spared some unpleasantness if you had made this announcement earlier in the evening. It is, as you say, disproof sufficient of Mr. Valancy's statement. But why this secrecy? The engagement has been lately arranged, replied Maddox imperturbably. There were private reasons for not making it public. Now, for Miss Longleat's sake, the more widely it is known, the better. And it must be understood that any disparaging allusion to my future wife is the deepest insult to me. I thank Your Excellency for your good wishes. My dear sir, said the Governor testily, there is no one here who would for a moment credit Mr. Valency's statement. The whole thing is a ridiculous misconception and must not be allowed to go beyond these walls. Mr. Valency, you must see the absurdity of what you have said. Your eyes have deceived you. You should be careful in accepting their evidence too readily. I am thankful at least that your accusation was made in this company. As a personal favor, I beg that you will withdraw it without further question. Gentlemen, I put it to you as men of honor. This scandalous report must not pass our lips. I am sorry, General, that the hilarity of the evening should have been marred by this unfortunate mistake. No, said General Compton courteously, one must regret the position of my poor friend Barrington. Mr. Maddox, I congratulate you heartily, though I cannot but deplore the fact that so fair a star must in future shine only upon Australian shores. Mr. Valency has not yet withdrawn his statement, said Cathcart coolly. Valency looked down the table. Every gaze was fixed upon him disapprovingly, while Dyson Maddox, as he stood erect with flashing eyes and sinewy frame, looked no mean antagonist. The natural cowardice of the man triumphed. Mr. Maddox's announcement has startled me, he said in a tone of sullen dissatisfaction. I do not withdraw my statement, but I admit the possibility of having been deceived. I may have mistaken another lady for Miss Longleat. I will respect His Excellency's wishes, and will not again mention the subject. I wish Mr. Maddox joy, he added malignantly, in his intended marriage with the Premier's daughter. Fill your glasses, gentlemen. Long life and happiness to Mr. Dyson Maddox and his bride-elect. The toast was drunk with some enthusiasm. Maddox made a brief reply, and shortly afterwards the company dispersed. End of chapter 38 Read by Celine Major.